Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's May 16th, 1860, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. How about a pair of pink sidewinders and a bright orange pair of pants? You could really be a boat Brummel baby if you just give it half a chance. So sang Billy Joel in his 1980 hit, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, ironically describing an ensemble that the legendary dandy would have loathed. Mm. And it was today in history in 1816 that Brummel's reign as London-style guru came to an abrupt end with a midnight dash to France to escape his creditors. And it must be said this midnight dash came after he attended the theatre, which seems the most Beau Brummel (laughs) escape possible. So he was trying to get out of London basically to escape his massive amount of debts that he had run up primarily by gambling and his plan was to uh, travel through the night to Dover and on to Calais which was about as far as he could go without a passport and there he did this other very Beau Brummel thing which was that he holed himself up at uh, Desson's Hotel and entertained in his apartments just receiving people while also learning French and writing his memoirs. Well he had uh, written and read French but he'd never really said it out loud very often. Um, And so he realised that he needed better conversational French because not only was Calais the furthest you could get without a passport and no one's going to give you a passport in Britain if they work out that you're on the run from your debts, Um, but also, as you might recall from our episode Abducting Ellen Turner, it was the first place you could get to where you were beyond the jurisdiction of the English police. Mm. Uh, He knew that he could pretty much hole up there and that ultimately is what happened for decades. He ended up living in France. And this would have been an enormous culture shock Mm. for him. If you've never heard of Beau Brummel before, like, this is the Bridgerton era, right? So he's he's a bon viveur, you might describe him as, you know, court jester, but also an insider, but also hugely rich, but also an outsider, because although he was born in the upper classes, he wasn't an aristocrat. He's a friend with the Prince of Wales. He's funny, he's fashionable, he's rude, he's amusing, he liked to eat, he liked to drink, he liked women. That was the life he had in Mayfair. And then this, northern France, fort town, shaves off his hair, learns French. (laughs) Very, very different. Yeah, and a few days later, his furniture and possessions back in London were sold at auction by Christie's, who, if you look at the listing, they very euphemistically describe him as having gone to the continent. <laughs> so no further information. Items, well, the items included give you a bit of a sense as to how he got into all of this debt. You know, there was like solid gold 
jugs, fancy furniture, books, paintings, the contents of his well-stocked wine cellar. And he had been living massively beyond his means for years at this point. And a lot of that had been due to the fact that he had this close friendship with the Prince of Wales, who had recently become the Prince Regent which had given him a certain amount of protection from his creditors, you know, that he had this royal patron. But then their relationship had taken a serious dive since he became the Prince Regent because he was very witty and he could be quite cruel with his jokes as well. And once the Prince of Wales became the Prince Regent, he no longer appreciated having that sassy friend at his elbow. The thing that he said that ultimately caused the uh, fallout with the Prince Regent was... Like, you know, for someone who's reputed for being incredibly stylish and also incredibly witty, it didn't seem that witty to me. He said, Alvin Lee, who's your fat friend? As the prince walked into the room. I'm not sure if it was within earshot exactly. Um, They were falling out anyway, but this was kind of a, a new low between the pair. Well, and also Brummel's role at these trendy soirees was a kind of pre wildean put-down merchant was his mm. thing, right? People came to his home and for Chesterfield Street in Mayfair to see how he was dressed predominantly, mm. uh, but also to get some gags, like he was the fun-time man. And so if if the Prince of Wales walks around with him for decades, then, you know, there's an element of, like, well, you asked for it. Um, he wouldn't have known that this would have been the severance of their friendship, and he wouldn't have wanted to do that. It's interesting, though, you, you made reference to that Billy Joel song. Yeah, so he wasn't a peacock he wasn't Mm. gaudy his look was sort of understated elegance actually and he made a point of not going to one particular tailor as well he wanted to have his own personal brand like Beau Brummel looks like this yeah his look apparently involved intricate folds of neck cloth and the bath coating material of his blue jacket was also very famous but he was it was a very muted palette rather than the Georgian uh, tendency towards excess and for someone who is still regarded as like the high point of fashion looking back on the way that he dressed now has so little to do with contemporary style except perhaps for these ideas of very good cut high quality material mm. muted palettes there, there are ideas but the but the thing that he was actually wearing, if you wore today, you would look like a peacock if you stepped outside. <laughs> yeah, it's true that to our eye, the outfits do look a little bit foppish. But at the time, they would have looked strikingly stark. His brand was aligned to this pan-European movement called the Great Male Renunciation, which was menswear moving away from wigs and frills and silk stockings towards the modern suit. And one of the things that Beau Brummel adopted was the trouser suit. You know, no more breeches and stockings, which had been worn previously. Uh, He favoured colours like black and navy blue and wearing, you know, white linen underneath, which is still the basis of the majority of modern men's formal wear. Mm. It doesn't look that surprising to us now. But at the time, there was certainly no set expectation that a man's suit was, you know, dark blue or black with white linen underneath. He made that happen and his look was all about showing wealth through Mm. flawless tailoring perfect presentation you know his linen was always spotless he was always impeccably groomed rather than flaunting it through gaudy ensembles which is it's kind of ironic that it was Brummel who was teaching aristocrats how to show off their wealth in a discreet classy way because he himself there was a kind of a touch of the great Gatsby to his origins well he was born in Downing Street yeah (laughs) life's never going to go too badly if you're born there (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. Certainly within the context of the time, yes. (laughs) Well, but the thing was that as well as having this influence over the sort of style of London, he also did have a very practical kind of 
um, power over people because he came to be in charge of distributing the vouchers for Almack's Assembly Room, which was basically the most exclusive club in London and where all high society women would try to go to meet their partner. He was the guy at uni who had the queue jump tickets for the nightclub. Exactly. <laughs> he was that guy. And so, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't just people looking to him and turning up at his door at breakfast to see him get dressed because they wanted to see what he wore, although they definitely did do that. But also they wanted to be in his good books because he was the guy who decided whether you were in or out in what was then called le bon temps, which was a French phrase meaning the good style or good form. And the temps came to be the, the, the term that was used to refer to Britain's high society during the late Regency. But he was also a problematic gambler. Well, there's um, that. <laughs> which you might think wouldn't actually be an issue with an enormous inheritance, but I guess, in a way, never having to think about whether you can afford a punt only accelerates the debts, doesn't it? Because you start gambling more and more without thinking there's any consequences. Mm. But there were, and he realised that he had to leave the country, and we find him on this day at Dessin's Hotel, which, as you were suggesting, is not exactly uh, roughing it. I mean, this was once the home of Lawrence Stern, the author of Tristram Shandy. Kings had stayed there. It was a posh hotel. It had a restaurant, which was a novelty in 1816. Mm. Yeah, and they mentioned that it was a, a kind of a refuge for d- English gentlemen in distress. It did kind of make me wonder what the business model of this hotel was. You know, like penniless aristocrats turn up and expect to be waited on hand and foot. <laughs> well, almost the first thing he did there, actually, was to write to two of the people to whom he owed money. Uh, And we still have this letter now, quote, persecuted to the worst extent by those to whom I was indebted without resource or the hope to evade or protract the execution of those menaces, which I was well assured would have been instantly enforced against my personal liberty. In other words, I didn't want to go to prison. (laughs) I've been driven to the only alternative yet left me upon earth. That of quitting my country forever. Yeah, and evidently there was enough of a rapprochement between him and George IV because eventually George made him a consul and that salary that he got from doing the job allowed him to start paying back his debts that he had already accumulated, not only back home, but since he had been in Calais. (laughs) Because by this stage, you know, I suppose this is the problem with gamblers that they can continue to gamble. And so he kept running up bills. Yeah, some estimates put his debts at £600,000. This was, for context, at a time when a middle-class family could live on £300 a year. And I think to him, having to have a job at all would already be seen as (laughs) a horrible indignity. But he really botched it as well. You know, his friends got him this position at the consulate in Caen, but after two years, it was shut down on his own recommendation. This was an audacious gamble on his part that he obviously felt that this post was beneath him. He was like, well, do we even need a consulate at Caen, guys? Thinking that he might be upgraded to some other position. And they were like, yeah, we accept your recommendation. We are closing the consulate and you no longer have a job. And then, actually, when his debts continued to mount up and he ended up in prison in France in the end, special declarations had to be made for him back home. But George IV was dead by this point. Mm. So it must have been a bit of an embarrassment for people working in the palace back in England. You're kind of like, why do we keep excusing this guy? You know, he keeps doing it again. Why couldn't he just quietly accept his life as a syphilis-ridden, indebted dandy running the British consulate? Why does he have to keep putting his foot in it? Yeah, and it was that syphilis that eventually got the better of him. And by the end of his life, he was suffering from terrible headaches and depression. Uh, He started to have these bouts of temporary paralysis 
And the image that you end up with is of the most fallen version of a sophisticate that's possible to imagine in increasing pain with delusions, depression and seizures. And they transferred him accordingly to an asylum, which was the location of his death. And he really wasn't, that really wasn't noticed back home in England, the ultimate Mm. insult to the person who wanted nothing more than to be noticed. And even though he died in relative obscurity, he did have you know, a really powerful legacy on menswear, really up to the present day. I mean, some of his tricks didn't catch on. Supposedly, he used champagne to shine his shoes. You can see how he <laughs> ran up debts, you know. He wasn't willing to use Prosecco boot polish, only champagne yeah. George Brummel. Tomorrow. It created the garage rock sound. Like It is yeah. the DNA you can still hear in the white stripes or the strokes. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.